Christianity is not a religion, it's a relationship. When my youth pastor first said that, I think it was in 1989 uh, at youth group one Wednesday night, it was the most profound thing I think I, I thought in that moment that I'd ever heard inside the walls of Parkview Baptist Church in Lewisburg, Tennessee. I was sort of blown away by it. And he began pontificating about what that meant. And in my mind, he sounded like Martin Luther nailing a 95 thesis on the door of our basement youth department's game room. I thought, this is going to change our lives. What a profound way to talk about Christianity. It's not a religion, it's a relationship. And for the most part, that night and that statement really changed my life. There were a lot of good things that came from that moment in my life. It, it, it made me realize that Jesus was a person. Uh, I read my Bible more and related to God more as a person. I prayed more. I listened to Michael W. Smith more than Motley Crue. I remember certain changes I was making in my life to pursue Christ as a person. It did a lot of good in my life, beginning to, to think Christianity is not a religion, it's a relationship. But it also did some negative things in my life. I began to think about Christianity in an extremely individualized way. And it caused at my worst moments as a little Southern Baptist brat, in my worst moments, it caused a me and God, self-righteous uh, sort of pride and arrogance in the way that I thought about my Christianity. And when it came to church, my, my, I, I, I began to think, I don't need other people. It's just me and Jesus. It's this relationship. And if I get too caught up in the other things that go along with church and go along with doing things for God, then I'm sort of deviating from this idea that, no, this is a relationship. It's not a religion. And I begin to have pride even in my relationship with God. It's better than other people's spiritual uh, activity and relationship with God. And it's better than just having some stale church experience. Now it's true. We must see God as a person revealed to us in Jesus Christ. And it, in Christ, we must know God personally and we must follow him personally. But, but if you would allow me for just a moment to push back on that statement, I think it would be helpful for us here today. The statement, Christianity is not a religion, it's a relationship, is actually a false statement. Because Christianity is a religion by definition. A religion includes a set of beliefs, doctrines. A religion includes rituals and acts of worship. And Christianity includes those things. And so it is false. It is untrue to say Christianity is not a religion. In the book of James, James calls pure and undefiled religion before God is to visit widows and care for orphans who are in need. 
Christianity is a religion. And so I think a better way to say it is Christianity is not just a religion. It is a religion that cultivates a relationship. And what is key to that religion? What is key to what we believe and what we do as Christians as we worship and know Christ personal? What is at the heart of all this? Where does this relationship begin inside this religion? Well, we talked about it last week as we talked about how religion at times can seem really leafy and green and good on the outside, but really have no fruit. And what did John the Baptist do to say to the Pharisees? You seem to be very religious. You think you're, because you're Jews, you're right with God. You trust in your ethnicity. You trust in all the things you do for God. But on the inside, you are dead. There is no fruit for God. And he called them to repent, to repent and bear fruit of repentance. At the heart of our relationship with Christ, And at the center of this religion, the things that we do, there must be repentance. Without repentance, Christianity is just a religion with no relationship. But with repentance, there is life with repentance And everything that we do inside this religion, when there is repentance there, there is life and there is goodness and there is growth there. Life with God comes not from covering our sin, but confessing and turning to this relationship with God. And when there is genuine repentance there, that we are part of something that is full of life, a religion that can be full of life, a relationship that is full of goodness with God and with one another, which is what we see in our passage today. Notice verse 20, as they passed by in the morning. Now remember, Jesus has entered Jerusalem and the rest of Mark is going to be about the week he spends in Jerusalem. And we've already seen a couple days. Remember, he comes in on a donkey and people are praising. They're throwing their coats at his feet, screaming, probably millions of people screaming, Hosanna, as Jesus enters the city. And remember, Jesus goes to the temple, this glorious temple that Herod has built, magnificent 35-acre facility, massive limestone, gold everywhere, 46 plus years to build. And instead of walking into the temple and setting up his kingdom, he walks in and turns around and leaves, which is symbolic of what we saw the next day. Remember, as Jesus comes back to the city, the week of Passover, the second day, him and his disciples move back into the city and he sees a fig tree and it's full of leaves. And Jesus is hungry and he walks up to this fig tree and he looks at it, but there is no fruit. There's nothing for him to eat. The fig tree that looks lush and is going to provide food for him has nothing for him. And he curses it. With his words, he pronounces death on it. And we talked about last week how that is a picture of dead religion. 
where on the outside everything looks good, everything looks green, every, everything looks amazing, and yet there's nothing on the inside. There's nothing to provide for you. And Jesus symbolically curses this tree in the same way that he will curse anyone who practices dead religion, anyone who trusts in their ethnicity, their works, the things that they put on themselves, the things that they do from the outside, instead of trusting in him personally and turning from their sin, Jesus will curse it because it is a religion full of death. And it's the same thing he saw when he came to Jerusalem. People everywhere praising him. The temple is magnificent. But Jesus is declaring there is no life here. This is fake and this is dead. And notice on the second day in the morning, they get up again, they're headed back to the city and it's significant that Jesus isn't staying in the city. He's commuting. And notice they're coming back into the city and they saw the fig tree and it is withered away to its roots. In, in just one day, by the word of, by, by the power of his word, this tree is brought to nothing. And Peter remembered it. And, and they're walking down the street in Jerusalem and he sees the tree. There were probably other fig trees there and they had leaves on them. And yet this one that Jesus cursed is dried up down to the roots. It is about to fall over. And Peter said, Rabbi, look. The fig tree that you cursed has withered. And we see this warning again, that religion without repentance will wither because it is cut off from true life in God. And I think at this point, it's just important for you to stop and to ask yourself, have you ever repented of your sin? Have you, has there ever been a point in your life where you realize that you sinned against God. He is the creator and you're the creature. He is infinite and you are finite and you don't get to make the rules and yet you've tried to. And you've sinned against him and you've turned from that sin and you realize you deserve to be separated from him forever in his judgment because you sinned against a holy God. And you've turned from that and you've turned to God. Has that ever happened in your life? Because what we know about every religion is that you can just take on the religion and it can look really good from the outside. But if there is no repentance turning from your sin and turning to God, there is no life in God. And it's really easy when it comes to Christianity to walk an aisle, to say a prayer, to start showing up around people that you like, to start going to worship services, to start going to campus ministry, and you begin, like Adam and Eve in the garden, to put a bunch of fig leaves on your life. Remember Adam and Eve in the garden? They didn't repent of their sin and say, yes, God, we sinned against you. They tried to cover it up. And some of us are covering it up with a lot of religiosity a lot of fig leaves, and on the inside it is dead. Have you ever repented of your sin? Because if you haven't, that won't last. And we wonder sometimes in the church, 
when there are people around and they seem to be attending everything and going to everything and they're all involved. And then one day we turn around and they're no longer there. One day we turn around and they're making a wreck out of their life. And we realize it was all fig trees. They did not produce fruit that comes through repentance. And so it, it is crucial that today you examine your heart. Have you ever turned from your sin to turn to God? Or are you just putting on a dead religion that will wither? And as a Christian, our relationship with God begins through repentance, but it also continues in repentance. We don't keep ourselves saved by repenting, but because we're saved, we hate our sin and we will continue to repent from our sin, even as Christians. And it's possible if there is no repentance, continual repentance in your life, that you are slowly moving away from Christ and you will wither over time. And we like to talk about burnout. Burnout happens when there's no repentance. We wither, we're scorched because there's no life there. And it's very possible with all the Bible studies and church attendance and serving that, that, that there's no repentance there, that you're just putting on more fig leaves and underneath it all you will wither and eventually the leaves will go away. Eventually the things that you do for God, you will not want to do for God. The things that you do in the church, you will not want to do in the church. And those things will be depleted from your life if there's no repentance. Our life in God begins through repentance and it continues in repentance. Repentance is the pruning away of the deadness in our life, the deadness of sin so that we continue to grow and our roots grow down deep into the word of God. What does that look like? When you read your Bible, you're not just gaining information, you should be repenting. Because you come before the Word of God and you say, this is a story about Jesus, and yet I've made my life about me, and I see God is telling this glorious story about Jesus. God, how could I ever make my life about me? From creation to the end, it is all about you. I must turn from myself and turn to Christ, who is my King, and live in His story. I repent. As I read my Bible, I repent as I pray. The act of prayer in itself is an act of repentance. Because prayer is saying, I'm not sovereign. I'm not in control. And I have to repent of thinking I'm in control. And I have to get on my knees and pray to the one who is in control. And so it's continuing the Christian life. One of the reasons we don't pray is because we think we're God and we need to repent of that and pray more. Our acts of service should be acts of repentance. From parking to BFG leader, singing in the band, we should see our acts of service as opportunities to repent because we come in and we remind ourselves, I can't think about myself in doing this. I have to think about God and I have to think about others. God, help me repent in my acts of service and turn to Christ. And when your Christianity becomes acts of repentance, that's where true life comes from. That's where growth comes from. And so if you're here today and you feel 
like you're withering when it comes to Christianity, when, it's, when you feel like you're drying up and you're burning out when it comes to church stuff, when is the last time you have repented of a sin? When is the last time you came before God and said, I'm wrong in this? I am wrong. And I turn from that sin and I turn to you. I believe the gospel is true. Jesus died for that sin. Jesus is righteous, but I'm wrong and I have to turn and pursue Christ in this. When is the last time you repented of anything? Of anything? That's why you may not be experiencing life when it comes to your Christianity. That may be why you have a religion without a relationship. Verse 22 And Jesus answered them, have faith in God. In Matthew, Peter looks at Jesus and says, what in the world? What? what, How did you do this? How did you kill this tree? Why would you do it? How did you do it? And Jesus, his response, it comes out of nowhere, really. Have faith in God. How did you kill the tree? Have faith in God. It's odd. It doesn't make any sense right off the bat. Trust God. Believe in God. Have confidence in God. Verse 23, he says, Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes what he says, it will come to pass. It will be done for him. Now think about how odd this is. Jesus, the tree that didn't feed you the day before, you killed it. How did you do it? Well, if you, if you want to kill trees, you can too. Just believe and pray. And the disciples would be saying, why would we want to do that? That, doesn't, that whole, this whole teaching, this whole verse doesn't even make sense at first. But remember, Jesus teaches his disciples in parables. And it's probably so. They were beginning to understand what he's saying. He probably went back to the Bethany, the hotel they were staying there, Mary and Martha. And he sat down and said, let me tell you about the fig tree. He probably taught them about that. And so it's possible they understood what he was talking about. But this mountain refers to a specific mountain. And mountains are barriers. They are problems. And he says this mountain would be thrown into the sea. Sea represents chaos and destruction. And so Jesus here is pointing to a specific mountain. This mountain. And he's pointing to a specific sea. And just like the fig tree, the mountain is used here as a parable. Remember we talked about the temple that Herod rebuilt. And he rebuilt that temple on Mount Moriah where Abraham had taken Isaac to sacrifice him and yet God provided an animal for sacrifice there. And on that mountain, the temple was built three different times. And that mountain is standing before them. This massive mountain with Herod's temple on top of it. Herod's temple that was constructed out of massive rock Some of the limestone block in the temple, they were 40 foot long and 18 foot wide. Some of the the blocks on the temple, they they went down 40 feet into Mount Moriah, into the temple mount. And then they were 60 foot high. 
And this is the mountain and the mountainous building that is standing before them. And Jesus, who curses the fig tree, dead religion, looks at a mountain of dead religion. And he says to Peter, if you believe this mountain will be removed, if you believe this barrier will be taken out of the way, and behind the mountain was the Dead Sea. And Jesus is telling his disciple, there's a day coming where that mountain will be thrown away and there will be blocks of that mountain that will be taken down and dumped over into the Dead Sea. It will be wiped out. It will be gone. And why is this? Well, the temple is a barrier, a mountain between the people and God. You see, the truth is there is a mountain of infinite sin between you and God. You have sinned against an infinite holy God and there is an infinite chasm or an infinite barrier, a mountain that you can't climb yourself, a mountain that you can't get past yourself. And the temple was given to the people of God to point to the promise that one day God would remove this mountain of sin. But the sacrifice of animals in the temple could not do what the blood of Christ will do, could not get rid of infinite debt, of this infinite mountain between us and God. And God had to provide an infinite sacrifice. And John tells us, John the Baptist, when Jesus comes on the scene, what does he say? Behold the Lamb of God who will take away the sins of the world. All of the lambs who have ever been sacrificed in the tabernacle or the temple cannot do what Jesus will do in his flesh and blood. The Lamb of God is on the scene. The Lamb of God that will die for your sins and do what the temple can't do. And we talked about last week that the temple had lost its purpose. It was a showpiece and it was keeping other people out. And here, the temple is getting in the way of people seeing Jesus, the Lamb of God. Herod's temple is full of glory. And it is blocking the glory of God in flesh. As Jesus comes into the city, he, he says, they can't see me. They are praising me, but it is full of dead religion. They're not believing in me. Why? Because they turn around to this massive mountain and they're putting their hope and confidence in Herod's temple. They're putting their hope and confidence in a dead religion. And he says, Peter, one day this mountain will be removed. One day, this mountain of sin and the mountain of the temple will be gone. And Jesus said, I promise I will tear it down and in three days build up something that is better than the temple you see before you, than the mountain and the temple you see before you. And in 70 AD, the temple was literally destroyed. It was razed to the ground. But the temple was cursed long before that. As Jesus 
is the one who is cursed on the tree, on the cross, and he is enduring God's infinite judgment, enduring God's wrath. He is doing what the blood of an animal could not do. He is doing what the temple could not do, and he is removing all obstacles between you and God. He is removing the mountain of your sin. He is removing the mountain of dead religion between you and God. He is shoving it out of the way. He is taking the the brunt of judgment and after, after being dead for three days, he is raised up as a new temple. And he says, if you want to get to God, all you have to do is believe in me. There's no mountain and there's no temple. Come to me. And so today, the only barrier between you and God, it is not a mountain of sin or a temple in Jerusalem. The only barrier between you and God is the sin you never repent of. There is no barrier. They have been removed in Christ. And one of the things about Herod's temple is that you have the mountain, Mount Moriah, and then the temple is constructed on that mountain, and it just made the mountain look all that more impressive. Huge. You can Google it. Look at pictures of the temple mount. It is massive standing there. The disciples would have seen it, and and Herod's temple made the mountain look bigger and more impressive. And that's the thing about self-righteousness. Just like the temple wasn't getting rid of the people's sin, your self-righteousness isn't getting rid of your sin. It's not removing it. It's just making you look more impressive. All of the, the things that you can stack up and say, look what I'm doing for God. All of the mission trips, all of the Instagram posts, Bible and coffee, everything that you are doing, you are stacking up this impressive temple of self-righteousness But if there is no repentance, it's just making the mountain bigger. And there is no barrier between you and God except the sin you are not repenting of. Your goodness rests on your righteousness instead of your faith resting on Jesus who has removed all barriers to God. And so, just like Jesus said to Peter, have faith in God. You don't need to go anywhere. You don't need to do anything If you would believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ right now, all barriers would be removed and you would have life in God. Someone who deserves to be dead and left in their sin forever and ever, if you would turn from your sin and believe Jesus died for your sin, Jesus is the temple we go to now. Jesus is righteous. He lived a life you couldn't live and he has been raised up. If you would go to him and trust in him and believe in him, there would be no barriers between you and God. Stop constructing temples of righteousness, only making the mountain of sin bigger. Notice verse 24. He says, therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. Now, when we look at the last section, some of you were like, hold on. I thought this was name it and claim it. Hold on. I thought if I just believed I could have whatever I wanted. I thought whatever the obstacle, whatever is in my way, whatever struggle I have, if I would just believe, it would be removed. And now here, Jesus seems to be saying that again. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe it and you receive it. There it is. Believe and receive. We got prayer cloths in the back. Nobody's laughing. You don't think it's funny. 
Well, what is Jesus talking about? Because it sounds like Jesus is name it and claim it. It sounds like Jesus is supporting such faith. But to understand what Jesus is talking about, we have to move to verse 25. Remember, the mountain of sin has been removed and will be removed by faith. And then he says, and whenever you stand praying, forgive. It's important here. What are we working toward? He says, forgive. Whenever you're standing praying, realizing there's no obstacle between me and God, I can come to God by faith through Jesus Christ. There's no obstacle. My sin's not an obstacle. So if my sin's not an obstacle, forgive. The word forgive means to release of guilt, release of bondage. He says, if you have anything, any barrier, any obstacle between your relationship and others, forgive, release that debt, release that guilt, untie that bondage on others. Notice so that your Father in heaven, notice the temple's been removed. We come uh, to God by faith in Jesus Christ and God becomes our Father. Notice he says, so that your Father who is also in heaven may forgive you of your trespasses. You don't have to go to the temple on earth. Your Father in heaven can forgive you, but what do you have to do first? You have to forgive others. You see, the issue here is not coming to God and asking for whatever we want. In context, that's not what he's talking about. He's talking about coming to God in repentance and asking for forgiveness. The temple has been removed. Have faith, and there will be no barriers between you and God. And so when you stand and you're praying, he says, whatever you ask for, which the issue is forgiveness to have a relationship with God, it will be granted to you. You will receive it by faith if you ask for it. You will be forgiven of your sin. But there is one prerequisite to forgiveness. One prerequisite, one thing that you must make sure you are doing so that you might receive forgiveness, and it is that you would forgive others. Notice, forgive so that. Forgive so that. And we got to let that settle. Because we want to say, well, we're not saved by doing anything. We're saved by grace alone, through faith alone. So you're telling me that I, I have to forgive others to be saved? Let it set in. Deal with it. Jesus says if you are unwilling to forgive others, your Father in heaven will not forgive you. Clay sang the Lord's Prayer earlier. It's right there. Forgive us of our trespasses as we forgive others. So if I'm going to have access to God... What do I do with the sins that others have committed against me? If God is going to forgive me of my sin, what must I do with the sins of others? We're not saved by our forgiving, but we forgive if we are saved. In Ephesians, we are to forgive others as God has forgiven us. How has God forgiven you? He has removed every barrier. That's what forgiveness looks like. And to fail to forgive is to fail to understand that you are forgiven. Now, for some of us, it is the, the, the mountain of guilt 
that lay between us and God. Or we, we don't feel close to God and we don't feel like we have access to God. There are sins that, that you have committed in your life that you still lay awake at night and think about. You think about those moments where you made those decisions that you could never take back and they haunt you. I know in my life there's things that I did, have done and said. And, and, and any time that I'm struggling, those sins, the evil one speaks. Those sins come up in my heart and mind and, and it's like I just can't get away from them. And there are moments where I'm like, God, how in the world could you get past that and still love me? How in the world could you do that? And for some of us, there is a mountain of guilt between us and God. And you're saying here today, name it and claim it would be easier faith for me. If you told me to name and claim a new car, I would believe that more than I would believe I could be forgiven. And that's why this is so amazing. Because God says, if you believe in Christ, his life and his death and his resurrection in your place, there are no barriers between you and God. And the only barrier are the ones that you are creating with your self-righteousness and with the pride of your guilt. Thinking that you have done too much where God cannot forgive you. Every barrier has gone. It's not God, it's you. God's done everything he said he would do in removing barriers. And for some of us, we live in that guilt and we're trying to make up for it. We're trying to put, we're, we're trying to do more and, and, and we feel dry and we feel withered because that is a dead religion not believing the gospel, turning from your sin and believing every barrier has been removed in the gospel. By faith, we believe the mountain of sin has been removed. And by faith, we know when we ask for forgiveness, we receive it. But for others, it's not the mountain between you and God of sin that's killing you. It's the mountain that you have placed between you and others. And that's why when you come to God, you're like, something's just not right. Something's just not here. And it's because we, we put forgiveness on a list of things that we've got to try to do as Christians. You know, I got to try to read my Bible. I got to try to pray. I got to try to go to church. I got to try. And forgiveness is on that list. It's on the list somewhere. And I'll get to it one day. And God says it's top. If you understand forgiveness and can't forgive others, then you don't understand forgiveness. Because when I say I will not forgive you of your sins against me, I am saying I do not accept Jesus' payment for your sin. And if I can't accept his payment for your sin, am I really accepting his payment for my sin? It's a denial of the gospel. My sin against God is infinite. And I'm just a little finite creature and I can be wronged and I can be hurt, but I'm not a holy, perfect God. And so my sin against God is greater. And so if God would forgive me of that, how could I not forgive you of your sin against me? You see, the reality, when we do not forgive, we establish a new religion with a new temple where I am God and I determine what you offer me isn't enough. 
But Jesus established the church as the temple, and this is where forgiveness lives and it breathes and is what gives the church life and growth. Remember when Peter said to Jesus, you are the Christ, the son of the living God, and he turned to Peter and he said, upon this rock, I will build my church. Not on Mount Moriah, not where Herod's temple is, but on the confession that Jesus is Lord. And it extends to everyone who would believe, Jew and Gentile, anybody who would trust in Christ. And what we see in the gospel as Jesus is building his church is he creates a priesthood from the nations. And they are known as people who have been forgiven, and so they forgive others. And this is what Paul talks about in Ephesians when he says that Jesus has gone into the altar of God and he has he paid for our sin and he has taken his blood and Herod's temple, Herod's temple, you have the priest, the court of the priest, only where the priest could go, you have where the Jews could go, you had where the women could go, and then on the outside of the temple you have the Gentiles. Jesus goes in and he sheds his blood at the holy of holies, the altar of God in heaven. And then he goes out and he brings the Jew in. And then he goes out and he brings the women in. And then he goes out and he brings the Gentiles into the presence of God. And Paul says he has torn down every barrier, every wall of hostility in creating and building a new temple where we have all have access to God and his forgiveness. And so if we stand before God and say, I, you accept our, you accept your son's payment for our sin, but you're going to have to do something else about these people. Because I don't know. I'm not going to accept them. And it's a denial of the gospel. It's a denial of what God has done. If the gospel is true, we engage one another as fellow heirs who have equal standing in the holy of holies in heaven before God, and we don't alienate and we don't push anyone out. We bring everyone in through the act of forgiveness. Now, just briefly, I I think I have to address this because what what I realize is most of us don't know how to even engage in the act of forgiving someone. There's a lot of talk nowadays about forgiveness that is mystical and it's abstract. And people will tell you, forgive the people who've hurt you. Don't give them power over you. Okay, what does that mean? It doesn't just mean make a decision in your mind, in your heart to forgive them that you never tell them about. Oh, I've forgiven them. I put that in the past. No, forgiveness involves very difficult conversations. In the prophets, uh, God would say, come, let us reason together. And that's what we do when we offer people forgiveness. We engage in conversations where, first of all, I confess my sin, and I come to my brother or sister in Christ, and I say, what have I done to sin against you? You tell me how I've sinned against you. And when I've sinned against you, I will turn from that sin And I will ask for forgiveness. I will say, I was wrong. Will you please forgive me? And then it's on them. Do they believe the gospel or not? But forgiveness always comes through confession of sin. God doesn't forgive us unless we confess our sin. And so when we engage in that conversation before others, we say sometimes when people are still in sin... 
and they don't think they've done anything wrong, I am willing to forgive you, brother. I am willing to forgive you. Forgiveness is on the table. It is there. And sometimes we walk away from that conversation. And we don't go, oh, man, I lost. They didn't repent. They didn't didn't accept forgiveness. No, we live as it's always on the table. So we remind them it's on the table. Forgiveness is there. If you turn from your sin and you confess, we will be reconciled. And when people turn from their sin and they ask for forgiveness, you don't hold it over their head. I forgive you, but I'm just going to remind you of all the horrible things you did to me. You say, I forgive you. It's over. Things may look different. But, but it's, I forgive you, it's over. I'm not holding it against you because God doesn't hold anything against me. And you've got to engage in those conversations. I just want to take a minute. This isn't a part of the sermon. This is extra. In your home, engage in those conversations with your spouse. Some of you have been living in the same home for 20 years and you've never had that kind of conversation and you wonder why your marriage is struggling. Engage in those conversations with your kids. I was wrong. Will you please forgive me? This is where life comes from. This is where your Christianity turns from a dead religion to real life in the home before your wife, before your kids, and before your friends. Would you please? I'm sorry. Will you please forgive me? Brother, I'm sorry I said that. I'm sorry I acted that way. Will you forgive me? And in the church, this is the temple of God where we all have access to God and we must have no barriers between us. And it's hard and it's difficult, but this is where good life comes from in a church, in a healthy church. And some of you are saying today, you don't know the pain, you don't know the agony, you don't know the scars. And you're right, I don't in every situation. And I want to just be very clear. I know some of your situations are really, really hard. And there are horrible things that have been done to you. You are right that I don't know. And there are things you may never get over. You're right. I I don't know. But I do know the pain and agony that called the scars on the hands of Christ that forgave me and you of our sin. And while things must look different, Because of the cross of Christ, my life looks totally different. So why would I not work to forgive others? This is what it means. It's not just a religion. It's a religion full of repentance and a religion full of relationships that are saturated with forgiveness.